podcast is brought to you by Mark Gober, the author of a new book entitled An End to Upside Down Thinking, dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. Please listen to podcast number 697, where Mark and Greg have a very lively discussion about the evidence that upends the scientific and public belief that the material is the foremost reality and how that reversal explains our seeming wizard-like abilities. In End to Upside Down Thinking, marshals clear evidence and makes the case that consciousness is the force that precedes matter. Please join Mark Gober and Greg on podcast number 697 as they discuss this compelling evidence about where consciousness emanates from. If you want to learn more about Mark Gober and his new book entitled An End to Upside Down Thinking, please visit www. MarkGobeer.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And as I do, Bill, every time I have to thank these listeners who come from around the world. We get them from London and Germany and parts of China and all over the place that come and listen to Inside Personal Growth. And I'm so grateful uh, for the fact that we have been able to create this reach over the last 14 years. And today from Pasadena, California, uh, is joining me is Bill A. Cohen, Ph.D. God's country, yeah. And I I don't use the A, though. That's fine. Okay. Well, Bill has written another new book. He's got a series of books called Peter Drucker's Way to the Top, Lessons for Reaching Life's Goals. And I will tell my listeners a bit about you, Bill. Not only that, he has written The Art of Strategists, 10 Essential Principles for Leading Your Company to Victory, The Secrets of Special Ops Leadership, uh, The Art of Leadership, The Wisdom of the Generals, and A Class with Drucker, The Lost Lessons from the World's Greatest Management Teacher. I'm going to recommend all of my listeners go to his website, which is called stuffofheroes.com. That's S-T-U-F-F-O-F-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. There you're going to find resources on seminars, testimonials, uh, posts, pod, and all kinds of things that I think anybody in management will find of value. So again, go to stuffofheroes.com. And I want to let our listeners know something about you. Uh, Dr. Cohen was the first graduate of the doctoral program that Peter Drucker co-founded. What Drucker taught him changed his life. Shortly after graduating, Bill was recommended in the U.S. Air Force and rose to the rank of Major General. Eventually became a full professor, management consultant, and author of more than 50 books while maintaining a nearly lifelong friendship with his former professor. In 2009, he was named the Distinguished Alums of the Drucker School, Claremont Graduate University, and two years later, he co-founded a nonprofit California Institute of Advanced Management with the mission of offering affordable graduate degrees based on Drucker's principle. He serves as the president from 2010 to 16. He now serves as the president of the Institute of Leader Arts and International Training and Consulting Company, and again, uh, you can reach Bill through his website. So, Bill, um, I appreciate you taking the time for being on with us today and really uh, talking with us not only about a bit about you, but about the legend, Peter Drucker. 
And I want to ask you, because you've written so many other books and you've been so prolific, what compelled you to write? Is too many, by the way, I should add. <laughs> yeah. What compelled you to write another book about Peter Drucker? And why is this one uh, so important for our listeners to learn about? Well, really, Drucker knew things that we need to know. I mean, he knew the value of, uh, you know, self-management, for example, and he wrote many down important ideas, but other ideas were in the classroom. And so he, uh, and then he, by his own uh, life and what he did and how he did it, he showed us how really the way to the top. I mean, you know that, uh, I mean, and here's a guy that who immigrated to this country. He, uh, he his English was, it was not his first language, obviously. And uh, he couldn't get a job at first. He, his job was uh, part-time uh, teaching, which uh, <laughs> with two uh, girl schools. And uh, he he rose, become you know the father of modern management. So, as you said, you know I've I've written a number of books about Drucker. He was uh, he was a uh, incredible individual. It was my great privilege to be his student. And I and also I, I was great luck in, in being his, his friend. And uh, so he has some things that, that we all information that we all can use. And uh, I felt like I should write this all down and get it out. Well, and you did an excellent job of it. And um, Lid Publishing did an excellent job of the layout. And I always like to tell my listeners, you know, when I get a book, that's laid out as nicely as this one, as easy to read as this one. Definitely, we'll put a link up to Amazon for people to get it. Now, for the history books, Bill, it might be good for you to give our audience some perspective on how Peter Drucker became Drucker, a little bit of his background. You know, many listeners today, it's not that maybe they don't know Peter Drucker's name, but, you know, if we look at our ages in comparison to many people that are running companies, um, Peter Drucker may never have crossed their transit. And I think it's good for people to know just a tad about the history. Okay. I'm not, I'm not an historian, but I did research Drucker and I did know a lot from having been a student that Ed. he was, he was born uh, in the vicinity of Vienna, Austria, and he was an Austrian and spoke till his dying day with a heavy Austrian accent which I can't even imitate. His father was a, a government civil servant in the Austrian government. And uh, really, like most parents, they wanted him to go to college. But he didn't go that route. He, uh, When he became of age and finished the uh, super high schools they have in, in, uh, in Europe, he got an apprenticeship in Hamburg, Germany, with a cotton exporting company. But... He really believed strongly in night school himself, and he started out by doing exactly that. He uh, had no degree. His parents were upset that he didn't go to college, and he started going to night school and got a law degree at the University of Frankfurt, excuse me, University of Hamburg, and uh, while he was working at this cotton exporting company. And uh, after a year, however, he left. He didn't stay with the company. And he went to Frankfurt, and he got a Ph.D., and he told us, his students, because we asked him, how did you, why did you go to Hamburg? Uh, he said, uh, 
and why did you get a degree in law, in international law? And he said, I did it because that was the easiest PhD to get. So I'm not sure that was a good thing to tell PhD students, but that's what he said, and that's what he did. And uh, so he went there, and he became to, uh, while he was there, he became a part-time journalist. He wrote a an article in 1929 predicting the incredible future of the stock market, that things were rising, and it was two weeks before the crash. And so he started off with a little bit of uh, humiliation. And, uh, and he, but what struck me even now is I, you know, I, I've seen folks that uh, try to predict economics or they watch it. We watch on television all the time and they make a mistake. I watch them, you know, I watch the news on, uh, you know, the, the talk shows on Sunday and someone will say something and the prediction some months later turns out to be totally wrong, totally wrong. And they tend to cover it up. But Drucker took responsibility for his error. And it was also the last time he he made a lot of predictions in his life, and most of Lee, which were years ahead of their time. And he was 100% correct. But he did not try to predict the stock market <laughs> again. That and was probably, rate, <laughs> probably a good thing, Bill, not to try and predict yes, the stock market. Yeah. I think he may. I think he started out making a very good decision. Mm-hmm. His his ambitions were at that time, he had an uncle at the University of Cologne, and he thought it, what he would like to do by then, he made the decision they'd like to become a professor. And University of Cologne is a major university, of course. And, uh, and then Hitler came. Well, within rise of Hitler becoming chancellor, he left for England in 1933. While he was there, he met his wife. Dor- he had met his wife Doris earlier, but he ran into her again, and they fell in love, and they were married. And uh, he had a job as an economist at an insurance company, and he actually wrote, started working on his English by writing a book. And he wrote his first book, The End of Economic Man. Some say it was his second book, but he wrote because he wrote a number of. Uh, long articles in, uh, in, in his native language, which, of course, was German. Mm-hmm. But the end of economic man was on the rise of fascism and really had to do, too, although didn't definitely predict the oncoming war, it certainly implied it. And this thing was published in 1939. And uh, he had the good fortune that although he and his wife immigrated, they came to the U.S. in 1937, even, even though everyone advised against doing this, of coming to the states that he would that um uh, you know it's a new country why are you doing this thing and everything he did and uh uh two years later in 39 the book was published and it was recommended by an individual who had been warning the english for about war for years and that was churchill and churchill liked the book a lot and that didn't hurt him any but at any rate the only job they were right to this extent he could the only job he could get was uh, teaching part time, and he did this for two, or one at first part time, and then he got a full time job. But it was for two for girl for two girl schools. The one he got the full time job was Bennington, and the part time job was for Sarah Lawrence, in New York. And but he didn't teach management; he taught political science and philosophy. But his turning point, in uh, I think, in his life for this respect, is that. Uh, 
he had uh, been mobilized during World War II and had uh, learned something about management. In fact, he didn't know himself what man- management was, uh, but he wrote a uh, at that particular point in time. But uh, he had um, he certainly learned it during this governmental work, and he his turning point I think was when he became a consultant for you know for General Motors and. He wrote the book, The Concept of the Corporation, and that got him a lot of attention, and he got a job as a professor at NYU in New York. And this, I think, was a turning point as far as on his road to becoming the the father of modern management. Yeah, I would say you're right. I think that probably sums it up. Yeah, that's a really good explanation. I think for my listeners, it's good to have that background in history to understand, you know, how he went through life to get to where he was because it, and obviously since that time period as being a consultant, he became one of the uh, premier uh, management consultants uh, in the world. Now, Peter Drucker, you say, Bill, that he believed that the smaller nimble or nimble organizations could excel. We see so much of that happening today, new startups everywhere in technology and in all kinds of areas and have enormous advantages over larger organizations. What were Drucker's four basic systemic strategies for entrepreneurship? Because I think we have a lot of entrepreneurs listening, and they'd like to know a bit more about that. Well, they, you know, Drucker had strategies about just about everything, as a matter of fact. But uh, uh, he said that the one you could, the four basic strategies. One was the dominance of a new market or an industry. And just as an example, we could we could use Apple, for, you know, computer for they dominated the industry at first, and that's that was good. Uh, also, you could talk about development of a market which is currently underserved. And here you might we might talk about management. Uh, but that is the concept of man, or the book market for management, because. Uh, Drucker, uh, when he first became a, um, you talked about, you mentioned management consulting, and Drucker didn't know what a management consultant was, and this had to do really with his, uh, with his background uh, during of his service as a PhD for the war effort. He had been mobilized, and was instructed, but not as a, not in uniform, but he was a PhD. And so he had been mobilized for the war effort, and his instructions were to report to the, a certain base and a certain colonel on a certain date. And so he did this, and uh, but the, the and it said for duties as a management consultant. And believe it or not, he didn't know what a management consultant was. So I looked in the dictionary, and there was there was no definition carried in those days of a management consultant. And uh, um, although he asked everyone he knew, he couldn't get an answer. So here he was. He reported to this colonel, probably a little. We can sympathize. I mean, here's a uh, a young man is who has uh, just immigrated to the United States or recently immigrated. And he's got duties as a, with his colonel as a management consultant. <laughs> he, he doesn't know what a management consultant does. And so uh, his, uh, he, you know, he didn't want to come out and ask. He felt embarrassed to do that. 
And so uh, they talked around the bush for quite some time, he said. And this is a story that he actually told us, uh, that is his students in class, really uh, for the small group of nine PhD students that met with him. And he, um, so he said that finally he said, uh, please, sir, can you tell me what a management consultant does? (laughs) And he said that the colonel looked at him in the eye and he said, young man, don't be impertinent. (laughs) I wish he said, I knew that he didn't know what a management consultant, what a management consultant was either. And so he, uh, Drucker said that, uh, you know, we're immediately realizing this. He he thought he mentioned things that he could do for this colonel and so forth and, and what his work was. And he got into management consulting in this way. And uh, he said that when he first started, you could go to a management, to a bookstore and, and ask for books on a business, for example, looking for management consulting, which he actually had done in trying to find out what a management consultant was before he had this meeting. And there'd be maybe one or two books, and that was it. And so he said part of his writing was, and getting into this area was, just to explain to others what this field was about. And as he did this, he said he taught himself and he became a management consultant. That's a good story. Certainly this is developing a market, which was currently underserved. Mm -hmm. That was the second way. The third way, by the way, was, well, he said you could be a specialized niche, the niche. You could do one thing better than any competitor. And that was your goal. Mm-hmm. And the final way was changing the uh, financial characteristics of the situation. Now, you can do that in all kinds of ways. And one way that I thought was very innovative, whenever I think about the how an ice cream cone came to be. I mean, we eat ice cream cones today all the time, and we don't think anything about it. But the story of the ice cream cone apparently is that in the world's fair of, uh, I, I don't remember it was 1890s or early 1900s, but in Chicago, that the guy that was selling in those days, ice cream wasn't, so, there was no such thing as an ice cream cone. Ice cream was sold and, and, and in a dish. And apparently that the, one of the problems that the uh, businessman who was selling the ice cream had is either the people were running away with the dishes or they were breaking them. And in any case, in one day, and I don't recall whether the situation was because he had run out of dishes or he had too much ice cream or the business was particularly good, but uh, he, anyway, he didn't have enough dishes. And so his wife came up with the idea of, of making this cone type of thing, and she did this with an iron and, and got the material, and they formed it into a cone, and that's how they sold the ice cream. Well, that's changing. The whole thing was changing the, uh, a lot of characteristics but also the financial characteristics of the situation mm-hmm. because he no longer had to worry about breakage or, or people walking off of these things or anything else. So at any rate, Druck, but Drucker had the, again, the, the four things were dominance of a new marketer industry, which seems to be obvious development of a market that maybe is, you know, not being served well for one reason or another. In this case, management wasn't being served well. Right. So he, Drucker stepped in. And thirdly, was finding something that you could do better than anyone else could mm-hmm. or any competitor. And finally, you know, changing the financial characteristics. 
Awesome. Well, for our entrepreneurs, it's a great summary and it is in the book. So Bill, on your chapter that you have, you call, if you dare the impossible, you can extreme, you can achieve the extraordinary. And you cite a story about a university professor by the name of Richard Roberto. Um, and I thought it was pretty interesting how he got his students involved in this project. Um, but it does talk in this uh, chapter about the impossible. Can you tell the story and why this particular professor is a good example of Drucker's concept to dare the impossible? Yeah, and it's, this fits right in with a local university that we both know. In fact, I taught there as for one time, at one, at one time. And that is uh, Cal State University, Los Angeles. Now, locally, we know this. I mean, it's an area and everything. But, and it's a great university, but it is not known as a number one engineering university in the country or anything like that. It is a, a university which offers master's degrees. It's currently, and it's done a great job, but it is, and it all, and I shouldn't say but, and also it is known as one of the, high, one of the, uh, uh, it has the highest percentage of first time attendees are going to college from families. And so this is not a uh, prestige school like Stanford or, or UCLA in the area or uh, MIT or anything like that. But at any rate, there was a competition. We had, it does have an engineering school, though. And it also has graduate degrees, a very small master's level program. And the, uh, uh, there was a competition which began uh, some time ago but it uh, began in, I believe, in 1990. And uh, it was a competition for to develop a solar car, solar-powered car. And between any university, it was open to any university in the country. And the first competition was 1,600-mile drive from Orlando, Florida to Warren, Michigan, in a car which had to be designed by the students and built by the students. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and that was it. Well, Robert, Dr. or Professor Roberto was assigned this, but, uh, you know, when the people realized that, my gosh, we're not an engineering school, we don't have the money, I mean, how are we going to do this thing? But Roberto pressed on and said, no, we're going to, we're going to, we can do this. And so he led this effort and they did this drive 1,600 miles from Orlando, Florida to Warren, Michigan. And believe it or not, they bec- this little the, this little group of students, not from a prestige school, no PhD program support them, not heavy donors giving lots of money, they came in fourth place nationally, and they came in number one in California. In fact, locally, the Los Angeles Times called it an amazing fluke. <laughs> and so, uh, but that's what they did. And so, three years later. He said, "Look, let's let's enter again." And so this was the second race that was held, and this race was held from Dallas, Texas, to Minneapolis. And this time, they, again, this crazy little team of of students, many first in their families to go to college, very small graduate team. They drove the car, they built the car, they designed the car, and they came in third nationally. And again, number one in California. And 
uh, the LA Times, I don't know what they said, but they probably said they were just plain lucky. And the, the third competition, and this was the third time that, and the last time that Cal State LA entered it, was in 1997, four years after that. And this time the drive was from, from Indiana to Colorado. And uh, it was 1,250 miles. It, took nine, it was a nine-day uh, trip. And they had 36 top-flight teams from around the country. And they were all shooting. They, they couldn't believe this little school had done this thing that had, uh, you know, that with, with not, not heavy financial or support, no research component or anything else, but they built this thing. And it was headed by Roberto who said, look, we can do this. We've done it. We can do it done before we were essentially daring the impossible so it ended up there were 36 top flight teams from around the country in fact my alma mater west point entered and west point's undergraduate only but these guys are i knew they would probably be tough and stanford uh, and berkeley uh, uh, they teamed up <laughs> and they said we're gonna you know we're gonna win this thing and they actually came in uh, third nationally, and I think MIT was second. Um, Cal State LA was number one. That is daring and achieving the impossible. Most you know, definitely, Vin, great story. You know, great Vince, story. Vince Lombardi, the the great the yeah. uh, you know, football coach, said, "We never lose, but sometimes the clock runs out on us." Yeah. So, dare the impossible. You know, I I use that a lot now. You know, dare the impossible. And achieve the extraordinary. Good but, story. Uh, that, it was story. that was not for me. That was by you know it was a subtitle picked by one of my publishers when I wrote Special Ops Leadership, and yeah. I've used it ever since. And Drucker believed things like that very strongly. He said that you know you there's you don't be afraid to take risks. In fact, risk is a part of things that you have to do. He didn't say gamble. He said take calculated risks. So well, that, at any rate, that, that was that, a great opportunity for, for a, a, what you call an, an, a, a university that didn't have any notoriety uh, to rise above the fray and actually after the third time win that competition. Now, you, I want to get into some of these universal laws of leadership that you write about, and you can inform our listeners about these eight laws in a very brief way, if you would, because we'll run out of time otherwise. Um, but these laws that you talk about are important in the world of business. Um, can you briefly mention each of those laws that you've uh, come up with and, um, and tell us a little bit about them? Sure. Um, well, there, there are eight universal laws. I came from researching uh, actually combat leaders. It, it started a long time ago that uh, I was, you know, I started my, my, with my military background. And I thought, geez, combat leadership is that's the roughest situation. You got people that don't want to be there. You got leaders that are sometimes ill trained, sometimes not, and sometimes the people are not trained well. And about this leadership. And so I did this research and I first wrote to 200 uh, different combat leaders of all ranks from, uh, from sergeant through general. And uh, then I were extended to several thousand of uh, commercial leaders and so forth. But anyway, that's the origin from. The number one, and this is one that Drucker believed really, really strongly. He, I went over all of these with him, by the way, and he said, "Who 
you're the best guy to do this to do this kind of research. But at any rate, maintain absolute integrity was number one. And uh, Drucker said, uh, "Yeah, you got. If that's a basic thing, if leaders don't have that, they have nothing because that's trust, and guys will not follow them. And so that is the absolute critical." But he believed in it. We went over these together at lunch one day, and he believed in all of these. But here they are. Maintain absolute integrity. Know your stuff. Don't depend on alpha. It's nice to have a, uh, uh, you know, be very, uh, uh, have an ability to speak and work with people, and that's great and everything. But above all, know what the heck you're doing, what you're, what you're doing. Declare your expectations. In other words, where do you want your organization to go? If you don't know, no one else is going to know either. And some leaders are afraid to declare their expectations because they're afraid that they won't reach them. That's immaterial. Declare your expectations. Show uncommon commitment. In other words, if you're committed to something, you can, no one else is going to be more committed than you. So you better be more committed than anyone else in the organization. Expect positive results. In other words, expect to win. You know, I just mentioned earlier about Vince Lombardi and his 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 saying that uh, you know it, that uh, we don't always uh, we we always win, but sometimes we but sometimes you run out of sometimes the clock runs out on us. So you got to have a positive results. Take care of your people because they are your resource. They're more important than anything else that you that you work with. And then put duty before self. And duty means your mission and your people go ahead of yourself as a leader, that you are in last place. And finally, get out in front. you got to go where the action is and be where the action is. So those are the eight universal laws. And uh, Drucker had comments on all of them, and he, but he absolutely agrees very strongly. And most importantly, maintaining absolute integrity. That's a, those are great. And those are the kind of salient things that, that our listeners love, you know, uh, Bill Drucker knew the way to the top for an individual or corporation and has to be spelled out exactly. And it had to be declared to all and especially oneself. He said, can you talk about the FedEx story and how Fred Smith set some expectations within his organization? Because that becomes, um, kind of a, a leading factor is, are these expectations? Yeah. Yeah. Fred, Fred Smith was a, uh, by the way, was a former Marine officer and he ran his organization when he first set it up. This is what, you know, we hear the story about how he did this as a, uh, uh, in a course for a, uh, academic course. And I got a C. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I do know that Fred, Fred Smith was a Marine. And he had, for example, there's a saying in the Marines, they have a saying, Bravo Azula, which, uh, you know, which is, that became a, like a great bonus. I mean, when he said, said Bravo Zulu, that meant big time stuff to the guys that, that were doing it. And he set out what, what he intended to do with the organization. And that was the most important thing probably that he did as far as any of the, any of the things as far as far as uh, uh, showing them what their uncommon commitment was, and they were setbacks they expected, 
but they kept going anyway when they had setbacks. And they, they, whether it was impossible or not, they did it anyway. Yeah, it was, uh, it's a great story in the book. And I just want to let my listeners know that, you know, and Drucker talked about this uncommon commitment. What are the four ways to show this uncommon, uncommon commitment? And how did your professor at West Point, George Patterson, get people committed? Okay, well, the four things that Drucker indicated was, one, make it public. In other words, make it a public commitment. I don't know why. Well, I think I do know why. Is People are afraid that if they make a public commitment and then they don't reach it, bad scene. You know, in other words, the, the people, the, 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 those that work for them won't like it or you know, they will feel embarrassed or whatever. Far better to make what, you, you, you know, what, what the commitment is, make it public. When you have setbacks, and there will be setbacks, I guarantee you that's the one thing I can guarantee every single time. Expect them and press on. There's always a solution. And if it's impossible, do it anyway. I mean, I, I uh, kind of uh, in my own, my own life, both in the military and, and, the, and the, as a university, as a, uh, uh, a president of a, of a graduate school, I used to love it when they said, you can't do this. It's impossible. You can do almost anything. If you can, there's almost a way to do it any which way. And uh, so if it's impossible, do it anyway. Now, George Patterson, uh, actually, you know, he went on to become a general also. At the time that I had, he was my instructor at West Point, he was a captain. But if he said something, he meant it. In other words, if he said something that we would master by the end of the term, the school term, and he was a, prof- he was a professor at West Point, then by gosh, that's what, what was going to happen. So West Point, you know, West Point was a great school for leadership, and George Pat- I was lucky to have George Patterson as my professor. But he showed what uncommon commit- commitment meant, and he publicly stated he did all these things that Drucker said you should do about this to reach the top. And he really, he reached the top himself by the things, by doing these very things. So he said something, we knew that he meant it. And we followed him for that reason. I mean, it was not just a couple of saying, if he said we were going to learn something by the end of the term, my gosh, that's what we were going to do. So this is, so all four of these are important. But, uh, uh, yeah, you know, and uh, you, you in it's uh, showing uncommon commitment is a critical thing. Well, it's a great way for people. When I say they get this book, Peter Drucker's Way to the Top, Lessons for Reaching Life's Goals. These are the lessons if you want to attain your goals. And that's what we're covering uh, today with Bill. Now, Bill, if you were to sum up the lessons from the book and Peter, Peter Drucker's way to the top. What words of wisdom would you want to leave with the listeners today regarding that? In other words, if there was a way to just sum some of these lessons up and say, here's the most important ones, or here's ones I'd really remember, what would you tell them? Well, it's like a, it reminds me, your question reminds me of a well-known story about, uh, uh, you know, can I do all this what you and standing on one leg, and uh, I'm not sure that I can, but I would say that you got to show courage 
by doing the harder right rather than the easier wrong. And to me, that means that, you know, uh, dare the impossible when you, you know, and, and uh, that and uh, and uh, do the do it right. Do it the right way. You know, we uh, Drucker said that the main thing is integrity. This is more. This is the primary thing of all. And I believe that to be true. I think that uh, uh, that's the harder right than the easier wrong sometimes. But in the long run, that's what worked out. I've had students in uh, at the university tell me, well, you can't, uh, you know, it's nice to say about the in- integrity being the most important everything, but it, uh, it's a jungle out there, Dr. Cohen. You can't, you you know, you got to compromise yourself sometimes. Well, I don't think so. I think that, uh, you know, you gotta you 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 gotta stick by your principles, and that's what Doris Strucker and his wife. I mean, I got to know her better after Peter died, actually, and uh, that's what she told me about Peter all the time. She said this was this was a I was fortunate to be married to a man who had the goals and values and the courage to stick by them in everything that he did, and I think if we can sum up everything about reaching the top. That's the that's the uh, standing on one leg. That that would be what I would say to do it. Well, Bill, and at this time in history, you know, with all the divisiveness and stuff we have going on in government, I think that that's a really good lesson for people to learn. Look, no, it doesn't matter if it's government or it's business or it's education. Um, if you follow this and continue to keep this integrity and the ethics and the honor to know yourself, your uncommon commitment, taking care of your people. Um, these are common principles uh, that people just need to abide by. How we got in the position we're in and went wayward in many different areas, um, it's obviously because we were not looking at the characteristics of, of, of our leaders. Um, and leadership um is so, so important today. And I just want to emphasize that for my listeners, the things that we've been talking about with uh, Bill today in this book, Peter Drucker's Way to the Top. um, I wish we were seeing more of that out there in government today. So that's my commentary. Um, Bill, thanks for that. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show and thanks for spending some time with my listeners um, at Inside Personal Growth. Again, for all my listeners, we've been on with uh, Bill Cohen, Peter Drucker's Way to the Top, Lessons for Reaching Life's Goals. Uh, If you want more information about the book, we're going to put links into the blog entry. We're also going to put links to his website, which is www.stuffofheroes.com. You can go there and get more information, and you'll also be able to go to Amazon to pick up the book. Bill, thanks for being on with me today. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. It was a great uh, pleasure and a privilege. Thank you, sir. This podcast is brought to you by Doug Neal, the founder of Verbal to Visual, an online learning platform that will help you to develop your visual thinking skills. Please listen to podcast number 699 where Doug and Greg speak about the power of visual note-taking, also known as sketch noting. 
This visual technique will help you to take better notes at conferences and workshops, share your ideas more efficiently and effectively, and make meetings more engaging as you create a visual recording that can be shared with the entire team. We hope you enjoy podcast number 699 with Doug Neal. If you want to learn more about Verbal to Visual and to watch some of Doug's engaging videos, please visit www.verbaltovisual.com. Thank you for listening.